Welcome to A Lifetime on Planet Groove, a podcast celebrating the extraordinary live album by Maceo Parker from 1992, Life on Planet Groove. I'm Ed. And I'm Guy. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. First interview. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. And um, over to you guys. So who are you talking to today? So, yeah, in this first interview episode, we have got uh, Stefan Miner, the founder of Miner Music. So he really is the guy that made all this happen. It's a really, really fascinating chat that we have. Hmm. Because what he does is he tells me all about his early career and how he really got involved in the first place with Maceo. And then he goes on to say how that then evolved from recording a studio album to then doing live tours to then life on Planet Groove. And what I love about it is, you know, one of the best bits about it is he talks about how they assembled the band, um, which is just one of my favourite details that we've had from this whole thing because... It's a Blues Brothers moment. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was just thinking about. So where does, the, uh, where does the conversation start out today, Guy? Yeah, so we started off by talking about his background in jazz and then he went on to talk about the performance that changed the direction of his career. And so by, um, by chance, I started out uh, licensing some funk and hip-hop music from, from the United States for the uh, European market. And uh, one of the really great artists I started uh, working with was Chuck Brown. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. Chuck Brown, the godfather of go-go music from Washington, D.C., who unfortunately died also a few years ago. And that was a big, um, he made a big impression on me. You know, I was traveling with them for about two weeks all over Europe and seeing him uh, turning these audiences on every night, night for night. You have to, I mean, if you hear it on record, it's one thing, but if you've seen him doing a show like this, um, it was unbelievable, really unbelievable. And uh, even more unbelievable was him doing these shows in Washington, D.C. They had these go-go parties every every week, like two or three nights in a row. And uh, this was one of the greatest things I've ever seen, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that made me reconsider the the kind of artists I wanted to work with because I saw there was so much energy, you know, which uh, at that time I had not really experienced uh, coming from the intimate situation of jazz concerts and jazz shows. and then. A guy from um, from Italy called me one day who had uh, heard the uh, Chuck Brown records I had uh, released in Europe. And he asked me, uh, would you be interested in founding a production company with me? Because I have contact with some of the artists James Brown has been working with. Mm -hmm. And um, that was in 87, I think. And um, I mean, I've always been a big uh, James Brown fan, you know, of being 13, 14 years old, we danced to Sex Machine and so on. <laughs> and uh, so I checked out Maceo Parker and Fred Wesley. Uh, my, my knowledge at that time was not, um, I knew some of the major hits of James Brown music and I loved mm -hmm. his music, but I was not really aware of his artists, his sideman and the history of all of it. 
but at that time it was pretty easy to to find that out soon enough you mm. know and that was really the time when um when james brown uh had um was the first time convicted and had to go to 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 prison so all these guys from his band uh who were working with him at that time and out of the famous people, it was only Maceo. I mean, Fred Wesley and and um, had been mostly working with with uh, James Brown in the seventies. Uh, PV had worked with him from around sixty five to sixty nine. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the actual uh, period when all of the three of them were part of the James Brown band or organization was a very short time. Yeah. And um, out of the three horns, who were called uh, certain times JB horns, yeah. um, there was a very clear uh, distinction between the three of them. Macy was the soloist, first on, on tenor, actually, later on alto saxophone. P.V. Ellis became first just the uh, horn player of the band, but then pretty soon became the um, the musical director and main composer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's this wonderful book by um, James McBride. Yeah. Um, Kill Them and Leave. This is really, that's probably the best book about James Brown ever. <laughs> and uh, in that book, which was, uh, it's from 2016, he created the term for P.V. Ellis the architect of the James Brown sound. Hmm. And that was what P.B. Ellis was. Unfortunately, he passed um, two years ago. And Fred was, was very important for James Brown in the early 70s because after um, P.B. had left, he needed a new musical director. But at that time, the, the transition from R&B to funk already had happened with... Um, with uh, under the direction of P.V. Ellis. Hmm. And at that time, when I started working with these guys in 87, Maceo was out of a job because <laughs> James Brown was not performing, but the other two musicians had also a pretty low period of their career. And um, they were actually hanging around London for a while with some other ex-James Brown people and were desperately looking for work. So. Um, that's how this Italian guy comes in. And the first thing we did was in 87, 88, was a band called Bobby Bird and the um, JB All-Stars. Okay. So I brought them over for a few um, shows, like at the North Sea Jazz Festival in 88. And that was the first record I did with all these musicians called Bobby Bird and the uh, JB All-Stars uh, finally getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the record did not that well. So in the end, nobody got really paid, but it was the start start of my relationship with Maceo, Fred, and PB. So eventually everybody got paid. Yeah. Yeah. And um, beside of this contract with the Bobby Bird uh, group, we made a personal contract with Matthew Parker for doing uh, several albums. Hmm. And by just being with him and talking with him and, and spending time with him, I realized that his background, you know, uh, um, I mean, I always loved uh, uh, um, 
Ray Charles, but I never had been a collector of of, of Ray Charles mm. uh, music. I mean, being just being too young f for that. And then I realized that his roots were really all the people who worked in the 50s with, with, um, with Ray Charles, like uh, Hank Crawford, David Newman. So I figured that having worked with all the three horns together, that the first thing to do was really get them together, but not by making like a James Brown revival band, mm -hmm. but really go back to their roots. And at that time, um, it was just the right move, mm. I think. Yeah. At the right time. Actually being out of necessity, you know, because we, we wouldn't have had the uh, the budget left to, to spend hours, uh, to spend weeks on, on end uh, in the studio. And then we got the personnel together for this record. I, I selected some of the people. Macy selected some of the people. And then we just did it. The, what became the Roots Resident record, which actually was, was also my title I created. Uh, later on, I found out that there's already a, it's been a, a record called Roots Resident by Charlie Mingus years before, but... <laughs> oh, well. Good ideas sometimes come twice or more often. <laughs> yeah. So who, who chose who, by the way? Who did Maceo choose and who did you choose for the, uh, the lineup? Um... I choose um, uh, the organ player, uh, uh, Don Poon, hmm. and um, I think uh, Maceo choose uh, um, uh, Rodney Jones, and uh, actually we had somebody else on drums planned, but uh, um, the guy never made it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so we were... Who was that? Okay, it was Dennis Chambers. An old body of uh, of Maceo, but I don't know what really happened. Maybe Maceo didn't reconfirm it or whatever. But we really had a serious problem uh, because um, this was like 1989, so you had no mobile phones. No. <laughs> and we were sitting in New York City three days before we were going to record. And we had no drummer. <laughs> So uh, the the sound engineer David Baker, um, he recommend he went with us to this little jazz club where the Larry Goldings trio was playing, and they were just really newcomers at that time. And it was really amazing how good the, the three. I mean, they were in their early twenties. How good they were, hmm. and Maceo really loved all three of them. I think if if we had <laughs> if we had missed the whole rhythm section, he would have used these three guys right away. Right, you know, <laughs> which he actually did because uh, uh, after after the, the the record was was done and one one or two live performances, I mean Don Poon as a personality didn't really fit into the band. Right. Yeah, and so this record became we first released it in in Germany. By the way. Uh, we were all in this mess before recording, looking for the drummer when I read in the morning in the New York Times that the German wall had come down. All right. So I was in New York City looking for a drummer and not for the German <laughs> wall coming down. So who ended up being the drummer then? Was that when Kenwood Denard was brought That in? was Bill Stewart. Oh, Bill Stewart, okay. Who today is one of the most um, famous drummers of his generation. Mm -hmm. Actually, the, the, the three... The trio we saw back then, the Larry Goldings trio, they perform now on their um, 
no longer as the Goldings trio, but as the Goldings Bernstein uh, Stewart trio. Okay. And actually, I saw them the other um, last year again, uh, and they were really happening. I mean, it's um, you can tell that working with these older guys was really very, very influential with these guys. Yeah. You know, and um, but we kept using. Um, uh, Bill Stewart for 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 other records we did with Maceo and with Fred, you know, and so after this experience with the more roots record, which definitely did not do better than than the first record, it only carried on because of the success of the first record. I really had to think about what I'm going to do next with them. Mm. Yeah, and uh, because the shows were so strong, I told Maceo man. We have to make a live record now. Yeah, and he said, "No, live records don't sell." <laughs> and then we had them uh, coming over for the um, in early '92. This was already the third tour by then, I think. Yeah, because they started touring all the time, and um, they came. I think they did a few things in in, in Sweden, and then they came to Berlin for a few days. Uh, and I went to Berlin to be with them. And then we went to Cologne and we had kind of arranged which tunes we wanted to use from a live recording and which guests we wanted to use. Mm. And basically that, that, that was it. I mean, it was his, his touring band at that time with Rodney Jones, with Larry Goldings, mm -hmm. Bill, uh, not, no longer Bill Stewart. I mean, this was another big problem. Maceo and drummers. Right. Why? Why was it a problem? I mean, he loved Bill Stewart. It was really, uh, um, he was totally happy with Bill Stewart. But unfortunately, um, Bill Stewart had already, even before the first tour with Maceo, he already had made an agreement with, um, with John Schofield without telling anybody, you know. And... Uh, and so we had a problem from the very beginning. Uh, so for a while, he used his brother, Melvin. Oh, yeah. I mean, who's definitely a great drummer, but at that time, he had been retired from drumming for a long time. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, I would have hired Bernard Purdy, but <laughs> Purdy was too, too expensive. I bet he was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you approach him or...? Yes, I, but when, when Dennis Chamber didn't make the first record, I called. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I think if I would have met him personally, I think I would have convinced him somehow. But over the phone, he was just laughing about the money I have. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a great laugh as well. I imagine that was yeah. quite a nice, a nice, a gentle brush off because he's such. Yeah, a, we had a nice conversation, but yeah. the results were not so great. <laughs> So how did you end up with Kenwood Denard? Um, let me think. That's a good question. It might even be that 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 Vincent Henry recommended him. Mm. Uh, it really is. I would have to to ask uh, Vince. I'm. Uh, he's actually my my oldest and and, and closest uh, mu musician friend still, and uh, maybe him um, because he definitely came not. From from Macy, I'm I'm pretty sure about that. I'm speaking to Vincent soon, so I'll, I'll ask him then. Yeah. Just how how do you and Vincent Henry know each other then? Um, I made in '88, early '88. I put a package together of a, a, a 
a rap band and um, an American bass player. I know. Do you know Melvin Gibbs? No. He's um, back then. He was really trying to 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 do. Do you remember the band Defunct? Yeah. Yeah, he was working in that um, like a mixture of defunct and um, and hip hop. Um, the great thing about this package was that I picked these guys up in New York City. We flew over to to Frankfurt, Germany, and I went through customs and so on. But these guys were not coming. So <laughs> <laughs> we found out there, right there and then, that the that the rapper. The most important out of the three guys, he was not an American citizen, <laughs> <laughs> so he was not allowed to enter Germany. Oh no! Oh, so no. that was that was the so the first act was gone, and the second act this this guy uh, he called his band MG Melvin Gibbs. Mm -hmm. uh, they did all right. They did all right. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we had very small audiences all over the place, but. Wins was playing with that band. I think he played uh, guitar, bass, uh, uh, guitar and saxophone and other horns on that. And he actually, that was the outcome of that tour was my friendship hmm. with Winston Henry. Great. And um, and I really have to say the uh, the reason why I chose Cologne to do this was that um, on all these tours, for some reason. The best shows were always in Cologne. Hmm. Why was that, do you think? Um, part of it was that people I became friends with uh, from Cologne. I, I mean, I, I'm not from Cologne. I just moved to Cologne in 89, actually. Uh, but I knew these guys from before. There was a DJ team of two guys who were the top DJ team for playing so-called rare grooves. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had this... Um, series called Soulful Check. And there was they did this, I think, like once a month at that place, at this hall where the, um, the Planet Groove record was recorded later on. And they had this base of, of young people being into that type of music. Mm. And they obviously knew about Maceo and there was a local radio station who had a, a woman working for them, a DJ who really featured that. They always featured the concerts and so on. Plus they had a very good studio in there. Mm. So all we had to do was rent a, a special tr recording truck because um, we needed extra size, oversized tapes to be able to record without having to change reels between uh, um, between songs within the show, you know, because we recorded all this on multi-track. And um, so it was just a, a three-day endless party. You know? <laughs> Actually, it was after their carnival season. I mean, we started recording on a Wednesday and carnival is like the biggest thing in Cologne. Mm. And this run until Tuesday and from Wednesday, the, the three shows, the three nights with Maceo. So they had like an extended carnival. Right. Yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> and the first night was not totally sold out, but um, the second and third one, and we could even, at the end, we could have sold out a whole week. Right. And it was so successful. I think that I really liked the the package we, we had uh, because it's kind of really unique, I think, with a little bit playing with this P-Funk 
spaceships yeah. and all that shit. <laughs> and also, I really love the um, the liner notes uh, Cliff White did for the record. And unfortunately, I just found out because uh, I had not been in touch with him uh, for quite some time. He, he actually died uh, five years ago. A big loss for the uh, for us. And um, he was really one of the guys who was very instrumental in the 70s to uh, working for Polygram, putting compilations and, and CDs together. And he, he actually won a Grammy for the production of the um, the Star Time box. Oh, yeah. It was the first uh, James Brown comprehensive compilation yeah, yeah. on CD. Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- there was a whole lot of history behind the whole thing too, mm-hmm. you know. Amazing. And um, and it just it just exploded the record, you know. But uh, the thing is that that this was a whole underground roots thing, mm. you know. It was not like somebody putting out a lot of money, having air, airplay all the time. It really was like starting from from zero almost to a certain extent, you know. Yeah. So do you think it was the magic or the the real success behind it was, yes, it was Maceo's name up top, but it was the fact that it was Maceo, Pee Wee and Fred, plus great musicians behind them. But the fact that it was the three of them together was the sort of secret source. It would never never have been the same thing with, with other musicians in the front line, because that made the difference. I mean, Maceo was the guy who He's an incredible saxophone player. There's no doubt about it. And mm. I remember the, the, the recording engineer who did this uh, recording, Gerd Fake, who really did a great job. He's, he is himself a saxophone player, but he's more like a jazz, avant-garde type of player. And he's, but he said, this Maceo Parker, he's the most rhythmic hmm. horn player I ever heard in my life. Yeah. And that yeah. say something. Yeah. You know, but the, 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 um, but Maceo didn't, he never got into the idea of, I mean, on, for the first record, we had to sit down and, and go over it and think about brainstorming what we're going to do and so on. Mm. But once this this concert thing went going, for him, it became making records like, um, like James Brown did. I mean, James Brown, they recorded mostly after the show. Mm-hmm. They went, in, wherever <laughs> they played, they went into the studio. But the difference was, he was creating new songs all the time yeah. with help of PV and or Fred Wesley later on. Yeah. So you cannot compare one situation with the other. No. But for Maceo, recording was always uh, something he had to do, yeah. not he wanted to do. And it was always a means for something, not 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 a, um, to make a hit record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a, 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 Stefan, we have to make a hit record. <laughs> and, and he didn't realize his hit record was Life on Planet Groove. And I must really say the best concerts were on the first tour and, and this short tour with, with the uh, Planet Groove uh, uh, recording. So fortunately enough, we were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so just thinking back then to, you know, Stadgarden, the concerts that would then became Life on Planet Groove, how did how was it all set up for the recording? Because one thing that we've loved over the years listening to the album is the the production on it. The production's incredible. Mm. Like the engineering, it sounds so good. Particularly, I think particularly the drums sound incredible. Um, so it's just how was how was that set up, and what what did you do to create that? You know, the sound that ended up on the record. 
Actually, it, it was just uh, the fact that the, the engineer knew his, his room very well. I mixed the, the record afterwards. And I think the only problem back then was, uh, in retrospect, and that was the, the, the reason why I really wanted to, uh, to save these original tapes uh, and digitalize them, which we did uh, five or six years ago, that it was, it was standard back then to, to, to use as a master uh, a DAT cassette, mm-hmm. a DAT cassette. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those. And and at the same time, back then we had 16, now what, what do you call it? Now we have, I think, 24, 96 uh, uh, conversion of, on CDs. I'm not, never so good about this, so it's technical <laughs> shit. Um, so back then, until uh, I think 1993 became the standard when, when you have the higher resolution mm-hmm. on CDs. Also, I know that uh, record after that, the Southern Exposure, this was the first major record we, we did with a higher resolution. Mm. And um, it took me a long time to find a machine which would play these ov- oversized tapes. I'm in between, there was no need for doing this also, but, but I always wanted to save these original tapes. So um, I think it was in 2017, we went back into a small studio in, in Cologne. They, f- they found this machine. And um, this also stu- studio where actually the, the owner back then also was part of the assistant team of the uh, Planet Roof Recordings, mm-hmm. who by then had his own studio. And a very nice studio. We've been doing there as a uh, PV and uh, Fred Wesley records. And we were able to, you have to bake these tapes. Right. You put them into an oven, <laughs> and then you can play them once or twice, and they're done. Right. But that's good enough for transferring it to the digital domain. Why did you have to bake it? Oh, don't ask me. This is, I'm never interested in that. <laughs> I know if you have to do it, do it. But I don't, okay, yeah. I don't Fair ask enough. why. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That makes sense. Yeah. I have too many other things to worry about. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> what we did then is, uh, is um, mix, remix the, uh, the tracks we had used. It's called Life on Black Roof Revisited. We have the exact mm. sequence of tunes remixed on the, on the first CD. And then on the second CDs, we have some of the stronger tracks um, like um, the uh, track we had used on a compilation only was uh, Let's Get It On. And the third CD is this black and white documentary from the Roots uh, Resident Session. There was supposed to be some additional um, film material from actually from the um, Life and Planet Groove sessions, but it had turned out that tapes were mislabeled. Mm. <laughs> and after the actual release of that package, we found the right tapes for for. Um, so this is still this is still un- unpublished. But I think it was recorded not during the performance. I think it was it was actually uh, uh, taped and recorded for for the director um, when he wanted to make the um, the big documentary in 1994. He needed support money. Mm-hmm. And in order to get that, 
they shot a few cuts of the 1992 show, but I think this was without audience. Yeah, right. Okay, I see. Amazing. But just thinking about then the night, you know, you were saying that Maceo had his doubts about a live album, about whether that was a good idea. When you were there um, listening and, you know, knowing that this was being recorded for the live album, did you, how did you feel when you, as you were listening, you think, yeah, this is, this is going to work. I know this is going to work. And then when you heard it afterwards, was Maceo convinced? Yes, of course. <laughs> but the funny thing is, he was never really happy with Kenwood. Oh, really? Why? I don't know. I mean, it's, he has to sing with drummers. It's, um, I don't get it. I mean, it's, it was such a, probably he would have hired uh, uh, his brother to do it. And then Life on Blind Groove would not have been uh, Life on Blind Groove, you know. So what do you think was his problem with, with Kenwood then? Or what was he not happy about? Maybe it's just a personal thing that, that he didn't, that he had no personal relationship with him or something like that, you know. So was he only with the band for a fairly short time or was it? Yeah, just for this uh, short tour, Sweden, right. Berlin. and I didn't realize that. Huh. I wish he would have, you know, he would have kept using him, you know. Yeah. Were most of the others there for longer periods, though? Yes. I mean, the um, Larry, I think Larry played almost, and Rodney, they almost played between two and three years with that band. Yeah, yeah. So just thinking all the way back to what you were talking about right at the start, you know, what was it that drew you to the jazz clubs back when you were, you know, a teenager and, and really starting out? And, you know, what was it that drew you to jazz rather than anything else? I think this um, this magic. But this ma magic is not... <laughs> there's no magic automatically because <laughs> somebody's playing jazz. I mean, the... Um, I think music to me is only inspiring if there's a real magic. And it's regardless if it's, um, if it's classical music, if it's Brazilian music, if it's rock music, if it's funk, R&B, whatever, soul music. Either an artist has the personality and the magic or, or he or she doesn't. And I mean, I have about... 10,000 records on vinyl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I keep still buying shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a few, more than a few thousand CDs. And for the past five, six years, I've been really gone back into the early jazz history. Mm. You know, big bands from the, from the 30s and so on. And I think back then, this energy... Uh, uh, the early Ellington and all these guys, uh, Andy Kirk and all these bands, Jimmy Lansford, it's always been there from the very beginning. Mm. Or if you have a singer like uh, Billie Holiday or, or Ella Fitzgerald, I mean, it's, it's a matter of personal taste. I mean, I love them both, you know. Mm. And these three guys, they really have that magic. Yeah. When you see this documentary of the, of the black and white, how... They come into the rehearsal studio. We rented the rehearsal studio. Maceo's playing the organ, and Fred takes out his trombone and plays, you know. And that's a magic, unfortunately, which today is very, very rare because uh, there are no longer that charismatic personalities out there. I mean, for example, somebody like Pee Wee, 
it took me a long time to figure out what to record him with. And then we started out with a trio recording the same drummer and, and bass player with his Fred's band. And you would never, a regular guy would never say, oh, P.V. Ellis with a saxophone trio like Johnny Rollins. What, that's, that doesn't make any sense. But when you listen to that record, you can tell that P.V. can play anything on that horn. And he's, uh, in terms of being um, a jazz saxophone player, he's way underrated. I mean, he's up there with John Coltrane and, uh, uh, and Sonny Rollins, all these people. I mean, J Sonny Rollins, when, when PV was 16 years old, he, he, there was like in the mid-50s mid or uh, six, 56, 57, he met Sonny Rollins on the street in New York City. He came once in a while with a saxophone as a kid to New York to get it repaired and so on. So he met Sonny Rollins and asked him, and Sonny Rollins was still pretty young that he must maybe 26 or something. Hmm. And PV asked me, can I, can, can And I, one thing for sure, Sonny Rollins didn't teach him scales. <laughs> <laughs> And they were lifelong friends until, you know, until the very end. I still had hoped one day we could make a PV record with Sonny as a, as a guest. But unfortunately, yeah. Sonny's still around, but he's not been able to, 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 to play for, for a long time now. When, when PV died, there was in the New York Times, there was a little picture from, from the late 50s with PV and Ron Carter, because they were both uh, school friends and they played music from very early on in Rochester, New York. So PV was, he had this real jazz background, you know, but sometimes people think, oh, there's a funk player. But I mean, this guy invented cold sweat. Yeah. And whatever followed on. So he, I mean, hip hop wouldn't be there without him no. and these guys. No, it's you amazing, know? isn't it? And then you have these jazz writers who write, yeah, but he's playing great, but he's not as big as, you know, bullshit, you know, but mm. most critics don't know anything. No, no. I mean, the greatest success in music business is to be successful with really music, which is worthwhile listening to. Yeah, agreed. And sometimes you're lucky. Well, weren't you lucky, guy, to um, sit and talk with Stefan. Um, amazing stories. Yeah. And so many things I wanted to pick up on. Go on. He almost had the same funk epiphany as you. I know. He talked about, you know, grooving to Sex Machine as a 13 or 14-year-old. And it's funny, when we recorded episode one, I'd forgotten about that. Um, but yeah, he did. Well, listening back just before we recorded this, he had the same epiphany, which was, yeah, a nice, a nice symmetry. Absolutely. And um, obviously I have a, an interest in this being a drummer myself, but oh my goodness, guy, drummers. Oh. Um, I mean, before we get to the, you know, the bombshell towards the end of the interview, Dennis Chambers, yeah. Bill Stewart, Kenwood Denard, Bernard Purdy. I love the Purdy story. He was just laughing oh at him goodness. down the phone. Add Idris Mohammed to that list. That's my five top drummers of all time. And you know, wow. four of them all coming up in the one conversation. And I just, you know, in my mind, imagining all the different versions of Life on Planet Groove, which... Um, as much as I admire all those other players, could never be, you know, as amazing as I think it is with um, with Kenwood, and we've talked about yeah. um, how much we uh, appreciated his performance on the album. But yeah, oh, just 
yeah, I was not expecting that it was almost Dennis Chambers and then imagine if it had been the Purdy. I don't know. I would like to have heard that. Well, and I love the fact that it was, I'm sure Dennis Chambers might have a different version of this story, but basically Stefan was saying that he went AWOL <laughs> and that he didn't think, they just basically had no drummer because they thought they'd arranged it, but Maceo clearly hadn't quite, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's. No. <laughs> oh, well, but it's something of the nature of these things, isn't it? The way things come yeah. together, you know, sometimes at the last minute. Um, and produce moments of magic like we've had. Sometimes you're lucky, as Sometimes Stefan says. Sometimes you're lucky, yeah. And um, I was, um, I nearly jumped out of my seat as well when he started talking about the video. That there was, you know, because um, I'll, I'll come back to the, um, the reissue of, uh, you know, 25th anniversary of, of Life on Planet Groove in a minute. But when he was saying, you know, there was this third disc could have been the, the footage from the, the actual concert itself. And um, yeah. yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I got to be excited, guy. I had a moment. And, <laughs> and then um, I just, you know, for me, coming back to drummers for a moment, that bombshell at the end. Yeah. Maceo didn't like Kimwood. <laughs> well, not didn't like him, you know, but that, he wasn't his drummer. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still coming to terms with that. Yeah, it was fascinating, that, wasn't it? Because, yeah, I don't think it's that he didn't like him. I think it's just that he, no. his style was not what Maceo saw as being the ideal style for this type of this type of gig yeah. you know is more about providing the backbeat really wasn't it than being front and center as Kenwood was and then as, as Stefan said you know um if it hadn't been that lineup and it hadn't been Kenwood you know life on planet groove wouldn't have been life on planet groove no that's it you know it's such an integral part of the the sound of the album isn't it Kenwood as we talked about in the the first episode that um it's hard to imagine it with someone else isn't it really but Although I've tried, I've been <laughs> last few yeah. days. Bernard Purdy, <laughs> imagine. <laughs> and I loved him, you know, coming back to Pee Wee at the end as well. You know, he had, you know, um, amazing things to say about all three of the horn players, but several other people we've we've spoken to as well have talked about what a special musician Pee Wee was and, and rightly described in the um, the book Kill Him and Leave that I've actually um, almost finished reading on, uh, on Stefan's recommendation at the moment, mm. you know describing him as the architect of the James Brown sound and the fact that he was, you know, so highly thought of by, you know, all the people that he worked with. And again, that'll be reflected in, in some of the interviews we'll be listening to in the weeks to come. Yeah, I mean, regularly referred to as a genius, isn't he? And, you know, yeah. it's really, yeah, a sad loss for the world of funk. Pee Wee Ellis, rest in peace. And um, I think I just want to say a, a big thank you to, to Stefan Miner as well for agreeing to be interviewed, for being so generous with his time, for, for sharing so many stories. And um, uh, also, I should point out for, you know, agreeing to let us use excerpts of the music on the podcast that you're listening to right now. And, you know, an excerpt can never replace the real thing. So if you've not heard the album before, <laughs> go to your preferred streaming service, buy the record, buy the CD. Um, that 25th anniversary uh, re-release is, um, you know, well worth listening to as well. And it was so interesting for me hearing about you know, how that came about and the, the need and the want to preserve those original recordings, which I hadn't really thought about it in that, um, in that context before. And it does contain almost all the, um, the songs from the original. It's actually a slightly different version of um, Shake Everything You've Got, which, mm. you know, as someone who knows the album inside out, it's really interesting to hear, you know, a, another take from another part of those, um, those special nights in Cologne. But if you've not checked out the original, do please make sure to do that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as well as the, um, you know, the tracks that you and I have been listening to so obsessively over the last uh, however long it's been there's um, a version of cold sweat on there there's a version of the chicken you know 
for fans of the album, definitely worth checking out as well. And the uh, the, the the documentary at the end from the Roots Revisited. Um, I think Stefan picked up on exactly the same thing that I messaged you about the first time I saw it and just said, oh my goodness, when Fred walks in and just starts playing. But yeah, <laughs> I won't talk any more about that now to spoil it, but absolutely you should check that out. So yeah. please, you know, go to um, go to Minor Music, check out the whole catalogue. There's all sorts of amazing music there. And uh, yeah, once again, just a, a big thank you to Stefan. Yeah, massive thanks to Stefan. It was a huge uh, pleasure to talk to him. So if you're listening, Stefan, thank you. And yeah, thanks for letting us use, use the music. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for listening to A Lifetime on Planet Groove. Um, you can get in touch with us by email. It's a lifetime on planet groove at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, we're making this show. We're putting out the, the first couple of episodes and then putting them out weekly from then on. So we'll, we will hopefully uh, get your messages and be able to include them in later episodes. So please get in touch. Um, yeah, and thanks for listening. What are we li- what are we playing out with today, Ed? Okay, so we're going out with uh, a little bit of Soul Power 92, the last track on the uh, original release of the album, um, which we've chosen today just because it you know, references some of Maceo's roots. Love it. So um, here we go. Strap yourself in. Let's go.